On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Dossier, presented by Metro by T-Mobile. Rappers aren't leaders, but they do have a certain sense of responsibility because they have great power. Millions of people hear their voices. I mean, I hear rappers reference comic books all the time. And any Spider-Man readers out there will know with great power comes great responsibility. And I think rappers need to take that, you know. And I think some do and some don't. But all need to realize that they are powerful individuals because they pick up the microphone and their voice carries everywhere. R.J. Bond is a filmmaker who has released documentaries about the murder of Tupac. Most recently, a film titled Tupac Assassination, Battle for Compton. While focusing on Tupac and his films, RJ also has some knowledge about the cover-up of the murder of Biggie. These two murders have to be analyzed together for the many intricate connections that they pose. One other fact that gets lost in so much material across the internet is that RJ Bond became very close with Russell Poole towards the end of his life. Russ Poole also lived with Michael and his family at one point. I was curious about the information that Russ Poole was tracking down right before he died. And I also wanted to know what information RJ had as it relates to Tupac that possibly could inform the Biggie cover-up. In future episodes, the natural next step is to possibly look at the Tupac murder in a detail-oriented way to see if anything has been lost this many years later. I come from a family of police officers. Uh, it's kind of a, in, in a hereditary thing, I suppose. Uh, my grandfather was uh, LAPD robbery homicide. My father was LAPD, decorated LAPD veteran, um, worked uh, robbery homicide, also worked vice uh, for LAPD. Uh, so the detective thing just kind of falls into the, into the family uh, as to how we operate. And I'm sure it's probably... A certain mindset that you have, you know, some people are problem solvers, some people are artists, some people are mathematicians. Everybody kind of has the thing that they do that they're really good at. And I think it's just a natural proclivity to go towards um, solving puzzles. And I've always been attracted to that all my life. Uh, I almost went on the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, pissed off my dad and my grandfather at the same time. But, uh, you know, ended up not doing that, kind of changed my mind at the last minute. Um, but to answer your question, I think that the biggest thing I could tell you is that solving a case, I never realized that it was so interesting to me until I had something personally to grab hold of. And that was my relationship with Frank Alexander, who was Tupac's bodyguard at the time. And that kind of opened the door. And I found out that I just really enjoyed the research. I really enjoyed doing the uh, follow up, the investigation, interviewing people and trying to get down to it. Um, the Biggie case was particularly interesting to me, uh, not only because of my relationship with Russ Poole, but also because it did involve the LAPD. Um, I certainly had a particular way of looking things, kind of home team view of the LAPD. Uh, you know, so it was very concerning to me, a little disconcerting actually, that the LAPD was uh, being accused of some of the things that they were doing because this was not the LAPD that was my dad's LAPD. It was not the LAPD that my grandfather's LAPD. It was not what I knew uh, it to be. So it was very much uh, a journey for me of unwinding some of my own perceptions about the LAPD. Uh, and that's what made the Vicky case more and more intriguing to me as, it, as it's progressed. RJ, coming from a law enforcement family, is highly important as it relates to understanding the complex nature of these murder investigations. I'm also sure that RJ's father explained how the LAPD worked and the inner mechanics of what is a very secretive organization. You can't discount this knowledge base. 
Yeah, my, my father was actually decorated. He got the LAPD's Distinguished Service Award Medal, which is the highest award. I think now only the police commission gives it out. It's one of the highest awards you can get in the LAPD without dying. Uh, it's the only like highest non-posthumous award you can get, the Distinguished Service Medal. He was actually the first recipient of it. They created it and they awarded him. He was the first one to get it. Um, and that was for some work that he did. He worked uh, on loan to robbery homicide from time to time. Uh, he worked a lot of his time in Vice, uh, working there and was responsible for, at the time, one of the biggest undercover operations things the LAPD had ever done uh, with narcotics and prostitution. I think there was like 100 arrests and like 70 convictions. It was a huge deal. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, he worked He worked there. He um, got assigned to train and want to talk about small world. And you and I talked a little bit about being in the middle of the hurricane. My dad actually trained Russ Poole. My dad was actually one of his instructors at the LAPD Academy when Russ was a cadet. So who knew that? That was such a small world when my dad actually got to talk to Russ again after many, many years. Um, so it all kind of comes for a circle. And I just felt like this was a place I was kind of meant to be in this space because of all of these, you know, they say there are no coincidences. Um, so that's that's how I looked at it. But yeah, he worked all the time for LAPD. The thing that I want to talk about first is when we had spoken last night, you had mentioned on the phone that there was a period of time after Russ left the LAPD that he did come and spend a considerable amount of time with you. And also second to that, I think you mentioned he did stay with you for for a little bit. Yeah, Russell and I uh, actually um, communicated. um, uh, Russell had not seen the assassination movies, which was more focused on the Tupac investigation. And, and this was, I think, the first time, and if I could mention it, you know, there's been a big public perception that Russ Poole was this guy who was obsessed with the Biggie case after he left the department, that he was just this guy consumed with finding out who killed Biggie. And, you know, the Kading's documentary had him with pin yarn boards pinned up on the wall and all that. And uh, even... City of Lies had him as this guy he had all these pictures up on the walls in his apartment. He was obsessed. Russell hadn't even seen the assassination documentaries that I had done about the Tupac case, or and it did have some inference into the Biggie case as well. But he was so far removed from things that he hadn't even seen that. So you know, clearly not a guy who was obsessed because he would have you know seen whatever was available at the time. I sent him a couple of copies of the movie, and this was 2009, 2010 timeframe. Uh, and he uh, just was kind of stunned by the amount of work that we had done on that case uh, and saw the parallels and said, let's let's get together and let's let's work on some things. And it became a, a very slow, but a very solid uh, friendship that we built up over time. And so it was uh, exciting for me because I had intentionally stayed away from the Biggie case because of my natural in with Frank, I was more into the Tupac side of things. And I said, you know, you really got to be able to focus just on one thing. So the Biggie case came along with Russ. Russell and I stayed, uh, you know, friends and, and close contacts for a long time, comparing notes, sending emails back and forth and just kind of working the case. Not so much that he was working the case, but he was never uh, shy from helping me if I, there was something I was looking at, an angle I was looking at, a person I was investigating at the time and offering me his opinion about things based on the work that he had done. So that was the the start of it. And then at one point later on, uh, Russell and his family, uh, you know, were actually uh, moving residences, staying between places, and they found themselves in a weird spot. And, and of course, I inv- invited him to come and stay with us at our house. And that was an incredible time because I got to know not only just Russell, the icon, Russell, the hero of mine, Russell, my coworker, but Russell, my friend. And the time that we got to spend together really got deep in terms of what we could talk about. Because when the guy's living with you, he's just, you know, right around the corner, you can talk to him about anything and say, hey, Russ, you know, I was just thinking about this kind of real stream of consciousness. Um, One time, and I wished I had a picture of it. God, I wished I had taken a picture of it. There was Russell and I were in my office and we had the case files and he brought his stuff over and I had my stuff and we put them together and we were sitting in the middle of my office floor on the ground with stacks of documents in a circle around us 
because we were sorting through all of the materials that I had, the materials that he had, and we're cross-correlating some of the information that was in them. Uh, it was uh, it would have what a great picture that would have been. It's certainly a memory in my mind, but what a great picture that have been. Let's talk about you personally on what you feel happened with not only the murder of Biggie, but the cover-up. And if you disagree with anything that I've put out there, I think that's we can talk about that. I, I, I encourage you to, to, to we can have that conversation. But I really want to know, where do you stand? What What is your now in 2020, December 1st, heading into 2021? Tell me what you think is 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 happened, basically. Well, I think there's there's been a lot that I uncovered starting in 2016 regarding not only Russell's work, but actually going back and reexamining things. You know, Russell's information was uh, pretty solid, but it was also dated. Uh, I mean, I think there's also an opportunity to go back and look at things many, many years later. You've got the perspective of time to see what's washed out and what hadn't. And the good news is, is that, of course, Mr. Kading's book had come out uh, with his theory and, and where his alleged investigation had led him. And and uh, there was also talk about that time about this guy, Phil Carson, that was on the scene and was investigating it. So we really started ramping up my investigation about 2016 or so. And when when I started looking at things, I really saw that that Russell's theory about what had happened and who the main players were, it held up. It had legs. Uh, and for as long as much time has gone by, Mr. Kading hadn't really done anything. He had certainly taken pot shots at, at Russell and, and said, hey, you know, um, Russell didn't know what he's talking about, blah, blah, blah. But he really didn't offer any proof to discredit what Russell had said. He just said he didn't know what he's talking about and just accept that as fact. Um, but I had seen that the information that Russell had had still held up. Uh, Randall Sullivan and I talked many times about uh, Amir Muhammad, for example. And uh, Randall had done some additional work on Amir Muhammad, had done some additional finding of fact with him. So there was a deeper story there. I had cultivated and developed a friendship with Ken Bogney, who was in uh, prison still, uh, but was uh, Rafael Perez's cellmate at the time. And I have just hours and hours and hours of recorded conversation with him um, where he would tell me the details of what uh, happened, what Rafael Perez told him, what he didn't tell him. Um, the review board that the LAPD, you know, put them up, up against uh, to discredit officers on behalf of the LAPD. And so all, each each and every one of these people that what I consider to be key witnesses or key players in there, I was able to actually go and reexamine. And the more I did, the more I realized how much I believe Russ Poole's theory was on was on the mark. Um, I do believe that David Mack and Rafael Perez were involved there. Uh, I do believe there were witnesses that placed them at the Peterson Auto Museum at the time of the shooting. I believe that they conspired with Amir Muhammad. I do believe that um, uh, Gene Deal did identify Amir Muhammad uh, um, after talking with, um, you know, I, I had a great opportunity to talk with Nick Broomfield, who did the documentary that, you know, where Eugene Deal did the on-camera uh, statement that, you know, he had never seen these pictures, but he identified Amir Muhammad from a six-pack lineup right there on camera um, and said, that's the guy. And why didn't, hasn't anybody shown me that? Kading's trying to take some shots at Gene Deal to try to discredit him, but that's just kind of how Kading operates. Um, but I think that Eugene Deal was right on the money. I think it was you uh, it was not a staged um, interview with Gene Deal. That wasn't staged. Um, Nick Broomfield doesn't stage his uh, interviews. He's a, almost an ambush reporter, if you want to call him that, where he'll go and he'll spring something on you. And whether you expect it or not, he's going to want an answer. So the Eugene Deal thing, I think, has credibility, as do I think Eugene Deal has credibility. So I, I do still stand by the uh, theory that, um, or the belief anyway, that uh, Amir Muhammad was hired by Death Row Records to take out Christopher Wallace and Sean Combs. And that Amir Muhammad wanted a certain amount of money for it. I believe that Amir Muhammad, as Ken Bogney has said, you know, both to you and to me separately, that there was a bounty that was put out. Uh, it was for both uh, Puffy and uh, for Biggie. 
And when the job went sideways, one of them got killed, the other one didn't. Amir Muhammad still wanted his money. Mac and Perez were kind of in the middle because they were the brokers, the go-between guys between Death Row Records and Amir Muhammad. Amir Muhammad wanted his money and he was going to cause trouble if he didn't get it, regardless of who got killed and who, who didn't, um, because it was supposed to be a two for one, I guess. And Death Row did what Death Row Records has done, according to Bogney. Uh, they reneged. They didn't want to pay him. And this uh, completely flies in the face of truth with with what I've learned. Uh, it doesn't actually fly in the face of truth. It actually goes along with the truth because Death Row Records had a habit of not paying anybody, and stiffing everybody on payments for things. So when I hear from a prisoner in jail that the, Amir Muhammad was expected to be paid some money and you know, they tried to renege on the deal using, yeah, oh, you didn't get them both, so we're going to stiff you. Amir Muhammad wasn't going to take it. And David Mack and Rafael Perez were stuck in the middle. There was a fixed dollar amount that they wanted for the hits. And I don't think, and again, I said before, I don't think there's any coincidences. I think that the amount of money that was stolen from the Bank of America, uh, where his David Mack's girlfriend actually ordered that amount of money from the bank, that was a fixed amount of money. It wasn't like they just went in there on one day when there was a, 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 a truck backed up and dumped a million dollars and they grabbed 750 of it. She specifically ordered a set amount of money at a fixed dollar amount. And they came in and they stole exactly that much money. So, you know, you have to ask yourself why, what's the relationship between that and what Bogdy's saying about the the price on the hit? Well, if you got a million dollar hit and you pay 250, that leaves 750. Death Row stiffed them and said, well, we're not paying it. Amir Muhammad wants his money. You're stuck in the middle. You know, who, which side are you going to take? Where are you going to get the money? I think in some ways, that's the only rational explanation that there is or that I've heard of anyway, Don, for why David Mack would go and bra brazen broad daylight and go steal $750,000 out of the blue. I mean, this guy hadn't have, he didn't have a proclivity of going and pinching banks. It wasn't his thing. That wasn't his MO, robbing banks. Uh, you know, maybe it was a great opportunity because his girlfriend was there. But then again, what kind of an a-hole, so to speak, do you have to be to put your girlfriend in the middle of that unless you're desperate, unless you really have a reason to risk her safety, to risk her, anybody that's at the bank, and to basically flush your career down the toilet because that's exactly what it did. Why else would you do that? I don't think you'd do that for just see if you could get away with it. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to believe everything Russ said. I think the facts fit the theory. RJ did bring up a good point here. To do a takeover bank robbery, I imagine you either have to be a stone-cold gangster or you're in a position where you feel that is the only answer to a problem you have. Again, wrap your mind around the fact that David Mack walked into that bank as an LAPD cop currently working for the department. Plus, the amount of money he stole is staggering, even by today's standards. Now, I do want to talk about Amir Muhammad. I think that Greg Kading has made a statement that... Uh, the simple mortgage broker statement? Simple mortgage broker and innocent mortgage broker, I think he, he might have even said... Where do you land with Amir Muhammad and the existing information? And, and I will talk about a few things. I will talk about, you know, this is a guy who it's recorded, got caught with multiple fake identities, mm -hmm. mul multiple fake driver's license. Now, as a mortgage broker, I don't know why you need four different identities or four different driver's license. If you can explain to me why that's the case, then... Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll understand that. Um, and I do know um, what little I know is that there was some work done on Amir Muhammad at the FBI that uh, Phil cannot talk about. And it is not public information uh, having to do with his financials, um, whether that means it's you know, a fake bank account, whether it means he was funneling money to DBAs, et cetera, et cetera. I do also know that the company, the mortgage company that Amir Muhammad worked for was close to a hundred miles from where he lived, meaning he would have to commute a hundred miles every day to go to a job. 
Whether he did that or not, I have no idea. So where where do you land with the story or the at this point the mythology of Amir Muhammad? Yeah, that's it's, it's great. There was something I, I scribbled down that I wanted to make sure I talked about, and that was let's let's take a point in time with Amir Muhammad. You know, you talked about multiple identities and that. Um, one of Russell Poole's first leads that connected Amir Muhammad to David McInerney, that was that Amir Muhammad was one of the first people to visit David Mack in prison after David Mack went to jail. And they were friends. They had been friends for years uh, through, I think it was Oregon State University, uh, where they ran track together. And the there's a, a, a point where um, when you want to visit somebody in prison, you have to fill out an application to get a, you know, to visit somebody, a visitor's pass or so to speak. And Russell Poole found it very curious that, that uh, Amir Muhammad had not um, uh, it, it, it listed his name, but, you know, uh, gave a fake ID and that type of information on the visitor's pass. And Greg Kading actually made a point of it to to try to debunk it by saying that Amir Muhammad uh, had put accurate information down. Uh, the only thing he didn't put down, he put down a fake Social Security number. Okay, and uh, that he that he put down there. You know, Don, hang on a second. Can we stop down for a minute? Sure. Okay, let's stop down for a minute. I want to make sure I get my facts right on this one because this is a good one. It's important. Um, it was either his. I want to say it was either his um, driver's license or his social security number on the app. Um, it's what is it? Oh, that okay. Yeah, it, it was it was his social security number that he that he faked, and not his driver's license number. And was, interesting enough, I did have somebody run that social security number, yeah. and it goes to uh, an older gentleman who is still alive in the Oregon area. Right now, who that is, I, I don't know. He gave a fake social security number. And and, they, and Greg Kading tried to use that to say that it was um, proof that, you know, he didn't want to give his Social Security number out because he's a mortgage broker. And why would you give your Social Security number out? Well, the reality is that the Social Security number in the state of California is the only thing that's not on your driver's license. So if you have a fake ID and the name and the address and everything that's on your fake ID – that's something that somebody can verify and put all that information down on. The social security number he gave was fake because there's no way at that time that anybody could verify that number. And that's why he didn't give it. So you could use a fake ID. Somebody could look at the fake ID and match it to the application on the jail visitor app. With your background and your father's background, your grandfather's background, I would make the assumption that you have some institutional knowledge about the LAPD. Why is it so hard for some of the detractors of this story to to think that the LAPD and a select few people are above managing this? The LAPD, for lack of a better term, has been for years and you know, whether or not it's changed recently, I can't tell you, but it's always been a boys club. It's always been an insider's club. If you knew the right guys and you ran with the right click of people and those people rose up to positions of authority, you went with them. Uh, you were known by them when you flew at a certain level as a detective. They all kind of all knew each other and interacted with each other, you know, uh, one way or another. So it, it was not foreign to me as I looked at the investigation to think that inside information was closeted up to a few individuals or and or dismissed by a few individuals because the LAPD's culture has always been if this guy and that's kind of where Russ Poole bucked the system a little bit and why he ended up on the outside of it is because when one guy said this is the way we're going to do it the rest of them just kind of go along with it because that's just the way they the culture is one guy says it. And if you're respected in the community, you say it and you're high enough up, everybody's going to roll along with you. Uh, and the guys that came up, as you mentioned, uh, the guys that came up through the ranks and are now uh, deputy chiefs of police, all that from my experience with, you know, my stories, my father would tell story, my grandfather would tell, you know, it was very much go along to get along. If somebody said, Hey, uh, I'm putting a bottle on, on this and we're not going to talk about this anymore. That was it. They were done. 
that that investigation went nowhere. And if somebody had a hard on to want to get something else done and push something forward, then everybody was on it. And and I think that that uh, it, it was very easy politically to say, you know what, we're not going to do this. You know, we had some rogue cops go bad. They were in the middle of Rampart at the time. A lot of, you know, a lot of cops that had gotten involved in the gang culture uh, were turning rogue and were doing things, you know, stealing money from informants and all that. And, and they had a real discipline problem with it. Uh, and I think that the old guard, the guys that were Russell's age and up that were detectives, they didn't like what the younger cops were doing because they were breaking all the rules in their own way and kind of embarrassing the department. But when it became too much, they just decided to shut it down and say, you know what, we'll handle this internally. We'll deal with our own. With your time spent with Russ Poole, uh, and as you said, I think the portrayal of him is this obsessed guy, you know, continuing to look into the case. As he got into sort of the, the latter part before he passed away, where was his head at in regards to the murder of Biggie? Contrary to the whole opinion that Russ had, you know, had all these files and in a storage facility and the yarn board with the pins on the wall and the pictures. When I asked Russell if he could let me see some of his case files, some of the information that he had, we had to drive to Palm Springs, which is like 100 miles away to his dad's house because he had a couple of boxes of his documents that were there. And we had to drive all the way out there. There's a picture on the internet of me and Russ where I got my arm around Russ. That was actually shot at his dad's house the day we went out to go get his files. He did not keep his files with him. In fact, he had some grandkids at the time. He was all about his family. He was all about, uh, he was working at the federal courthouse at the time uh, as a bailiff. Uh, You know, he was kind of, his head was in the immediate with his family. The whole Biggie thing, I watched him, literally watched him turn interviews down because news channels would call him up on the phone, want to talk to him about it. You know, every year when it roll around, you know, or some significant event or, or there was some news, they would always want to call him and do an interview with him. He didn't want to drive. He didn't want to get off the couch to go and do an interview about these things. And that's hardly what you would think from a guy who's obsessed with a case. You know, they'd want to welcome any opportunity, you know, kind of like Katie never met an interview he wouldn't do. And Kading is called places. Actually, after I interviewed, he would call the same place up and say, you have to interview me because you interviewed R.J. Bond. And he would solicit interviews. Russ was the opposite. Russ didn't want to interview with people if he was inconvenienced by it at all. And there were many times that he didn't want to talk about the Biggie case, just flat out. I'd ask him about things. Uh, he didn't want to talk about it. So uh, anybody that knew Russ in his later years and his kids and his family would totally agree with this, knew that that. Up until probably 2015, 2016 time frame, right around there, Russ was just wasn't feeling the whole Biggie thing. He was so far from it. It was, you know, it was out there and he was known for it, but he had the other priorities. Now, to the second part of your question about how he kind of got into the Tupac thing, literally that was because of me. I was branching out after I had done um, the assass- second assassination movies. We had talked about doing a Biggie assassination, Tupac assassination, and following it up with another one called Biggie assassination and getting into that world of the Biggie Smalls case. Now, I was still cutting my teeth on it. There was so much I didn't know about it. But the good news was is that I'd spent the previous 10 years understanding death row records, understanding who all the major players were. And that gave me enough time to get a foundation down to start talking about the Biggie case. At least... Um, have a have a headspace about it that seemed somewhat legitimate. I could have a bona fide conversation with somebody about it. Where ten years, two thousand seven timeframe, I I couldn't talk to you about anything about it. So when we did that, I felt like it was a good time to start bringing that conversation up. And again, you know, uh, engaged Russ, asked him if we wanted to write a book, uh, which became a book called Tupac One Eighty Seven, and that was Russell's and my comparing of notes, comparing of descriptions of the players, Russell helping me even more solidify some of that and how the Tupac and the Biggie cases were related. And that's really what was kind of cool about it is Russell and I kind of came together. He had the Biggie side, I had the Tupac side, and we kind of came together and found out where that intersected. And we were both edified as a result of it. Uh, And I think that's what makes 187 such a great book is because it really does 
join the two together and gives you a good understanding of the whole breadth of, of both cases. So the next question I have is, is an interesting character who seems to be able to do two things. One, he seems to have Teflon as it relates to a lot of the incidents with not only Tupac, but also Biggie. And the second thing is, is um, he's now has been able to go out into the public forum and talk about these things in a way that aligns himself with Greg Kading. And, and that is Reggie Wright Jr. And I will preface this by saying uh, we've been in contact with him. And I think he said he wants to do an interview. And, and I look forward to speaking with Reg and, and hearing his, his side of things. But there probably, arguably, isn't another person on the planet who has done more digging into Compton, uh, the Reggie Wright Sr., Reggie Wright Jr., for people that don't understand the role that Reggie Wright Sr. and Reggie Wright Jr. played in Compton in general, I think I'd like you to explain. And then the second part I'd like you to explain is possibly his roles in both of these and where you land as of right now with Reggie. Reggie Wright Sr. and Reggie Wright Jr. later were both members of the Compton Police Department. The city of Compton had their own municipal police department. They weren't under contract with the sheriff's department. As a city chartered in Los Angeles, they had their own police department. I think there was probably 150 people that worked on the police department at the time. Reggie Wright Sr. had come up through the ranks of the Compton Police Department, which had been around for, you know, years and uh, worked his way up to being a lieutenant on the Compton Police Department. Uh, Reggie Wright Jr., his son, uh, was hired, much like I was talking about the LAPD, where you make a couple of phone calls and you're the son of somebody, so the uh, son of a cop, so you're, you're in. Uh, I think that that's, could be easily explained as to what happened with Reggie Wright Jr. Uh, he got awarded uh, a position on the Compton Police Department. Originally, I think he worked as a jailer at first, and then he went out to uh, squad and patrol. Uh, he did bypass, because it's a small police department, I'm sure the politics are pretty good there, uh, bypassed a lot of the uh, traditional ways a cop would come up to work with gangs and work on a particular investigation detail or a detail. Usually you got to put your time in, work this beat, work the squad car, spend so much time doing it. Reggie got immediately kind of fast-tracked to working with the gang detail and working with the gangs. Now, his father, Reggie Wright Sr., was actually a gang unit uh, lieutenant supervisor, uh, largely because, and I, I don't think either of either will deny it. Uh, in fact, many people have talked about the Reggie Wright Sr. kind of grew up in Compton around and watched and witnessed the formation of the gangs. So he was old enough to know who all of the leaders of the gangs were, the heads of the gangs. Back in a day and age when the leaders of the gangs had a little bit of, uh, um, I would say, practicality to how they worked, how they did things. And what, for whatever social reasons gangs were created in the first place, the leaders of those gangs had some higher-minded concept in mind. I don't think it exists like that anymore today, but uh, I think back in those days it did. So there was almost an honor. Chris Blatchford, who worked for Fox News, was similar in that he came up as a news reporter as these gangs were becoming created, and he had a, a, an alliance with the leaders of the gangs, and they had a fairly open communication line. So Reggie Sr. having a, a direct line and access to the gangs were knowing all the gang players as they formed and then split off. Reggie Jr. also came up on that, although I think Reggie Jr., he didn't have that kind of knowledge. He grew up around it, but didn't know the leaders like his dad did, but still worked with the gangs. And that immediately begs the question about, well, if you're in pretty cozy with these gangs and you know the gang leaders, let's presume, because I don't want to say it wasn't, you know, I don't always assume a nefarious reasoning for things but let's presume for a minute that reggie senior was a uh you know a guy who wanted to do the right thing and he was working with the gangs for whatever good reasons there were to work with the gangs to stop the drugs illicit sales of drugs and things like that if that was the case it's very easy to see when you're that close to it how at least the opportunity for corruption can exist uh, i i think i don't think anybody could deny that that if you're that close to 
uh, the temptation, the ability to step over the line one way or another is certainly there. And I think it certainly needs to be looked at. Uh, you know, no one can say it's an absolute po- improbability that that could ever happen because you're just there. You're in the middle of it. You're with the gangs. You're working with the gangs. And there's enough other officers that have come out on the Compton Police Department. And, you know, there's a counter to everything. You know, Reggie's got a counter for each person that said something about him. He's got something to say about them. Um, you know, there, there's been enough allegations, even internally with other Compton police officers, that there was some uh, crossing of lines uh, from an ethical standpoint uh, with Reggie Sr. and with Reggie Jr. Even the Compton corruption report does say that there was some, let's just say, uh, I'll, for the sake of benefit of the doubt, I'll say negligence involved with uh, some of the things that that Reggie Sr. did and and some of his activities certainly seemed um, outside of the scope of what normal police procedure would be in a given situation like that. R.J. Bond is making a bit of an understatement here. Officers inside the Compton Police Department, no doubt, were involved in illegal activities. Keep in mind, the Compton Police Department was so corrupt that the department was completely disbanded and Compton was taken over by the L.A. County Sheriff Department. I can't stress enough that the story of Compton and the story of the connections inside that city all trace back to the murders of Tupac and Biggie. If someone was to connect the dots of all the major underworld figures, it would make for compelling storytelling. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Toni Morrison, a mesmerizing coming-of-age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman too will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown, to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day, or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife Need a scintillating night out every once in a while, at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. 
baking that all up into a cake, I could say that, you know, my understanding of, of Reggie Sr. and Reggie Jr.'s time on the Compton Police Department was um, very um, dubious. I guess would say I, I, I'm not sure that that uh, for every person that would say that these people were bastions of goodness and bastions of decency, that another person wouldn't say that these people were corrupt. So, you know, the, it's kind of a split jury, if you want to call it that on them, um, that that's been that's been my experience there. And like I said, Reggie left the um, Compton Police Department. He got injured in an auto accident and hurt his ankle. And he took a medical disability, which is really fascinating to me because usually when you're a cop and you hurt your ankle, I mean, I know cops that have taken shots to the head, like uh, um, the fellow that was um, shot in Long Beach. There was a Long Beach police officer that was actually shot point blank in the head. He was a motorcycle cop. Brian Watt was his name. And Brian Watt was shot in the head. Um, six weeks later, he was back. He was on desk duty, but he was back working for the police department again. Okay. I've seen cops take shot gunshots to the lungs, get over it, get back on the job again. Uh, they work a desk job. They do whatever. I- I've never seen somebody get their ankle hurt and retire on a complete medical disability ever in my life. I've, I've never seen that. But for the last 20 years or so, Reggie Jr. has been taking a medical disability and medical disability payments from the city of Compton for hurting his ankle. Okay. Which is, you know, I, I mean, and, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to sit there and, 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 and act like, you know, one person's better than another one when it comes to taking advantage of things. But I mean, really, uh, you know, you hurt your ankle. If you want to be a cop, you're a cop. If you don't want to be a cop, don't be a cop, but taking a medical disability because of your ankle being hurt seems like a kind of a stretch to me. Um, so, uh, and if that speaks to character, well, then it does. It is what it is. Um, Reggie, then after he had hurt his ankle, um, I think there was a period of time between him getting off on medical disability and him starting to work with death row. He, he created a security company called, uh, code four. Uh, I believe he was working with another, uh, police officer who actually had the company. And that was where he started his working relationship with death row records. Uh, when he went to work with death row, uh, originally as a contractor, you get to know Suge Knight better. I guess they were friends for years anyway, so that was kind of the end. Uh, Reggie was able to go get his own license, and he formed what was called Rightway Security. Um, when Rightway was, um, basically, Rightway had a few other clients, like a couple of construction sites, but their primary bread and butter was Death Row Records. That's what they did, and that's who they hired the guards for. Reggie Wright quickly worked his way up because of his friendship with Suge Knight to a one-on-one relationship with the owner of Death Row Records. Uh, there is no one on the planet that can dispute that they're not tied up. Okay, there isn't. Uh, Reggie might tell you that there were many things that he didn't know about things that Suge did when he wasn't around. Um, I, I, I don't know that that doesn't qualify as plausible deniability here, Don, but, at, but by the same token... Um, my take on Reggie Wright is that he is basically the center of the hurricane. There, there is nothing. I don't. I don't care if it's a Pucci Faust thing. I don't care if it's a Amir Muhammad thing. I don't care if it's a FBI thing. I, I don't care what theory you put out there that involves both the Tupac and the Biggie cases. That Reggie Wright is not directly involved with in one way or another. Now, that leads us to a branch and and something I think I wrestle with still today. Um, that on the one hand, um, you know, they say never attribute to malice, which you can attribute to stupidity. Um, you know, being in the middle of something, being in the eye of the hurricane, you can either be a, a, a witting participant or an unwitting participant in it. Uh, you know, there's many cases and, uh, uh, we interviewed some for the assassination movie, some of the, um, the prosecutors on the operation big spender case for the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department where it involved police corruption. There were there were deputies that got involved with things and they said, yeah, I participated in these heists and I participated in these things, but I never spent a dime of the money uh, because I was coerced by the other guys. And I went along because all these other guys were doing these things and I never spent a dime. In fact, it's out in my backyard buried in a hole if you want to get it. And they did. And every single dime was accounted for that that guy had had taken as his cut from these heists that these corrupt sheriffs had, had made. And, and so I've seen it personally where. 
a person could be a participant, but they may have other motivating factors for why they were participant in it. You know, I can't sit here and give you motive because I can't read minds. But I can actually say that whether or not he wants to admit it or not, Reggie Wright Jr. is at the middle of both controversies, the Biggie and the Tupac controversy. There's no getting around that. And my problem is to this day, and maybe he'll, he can enlighten you or enlighten me or somebody else, how he has not given an adequate explanation as far as I'm concerned as to how he justifies how he's in the middle of both of these and why he shouldn't be looked at as a person of interest in both of these. Okay. He could talk of discredit you, discredit me, discredit somebody else. But at the end of the day, he still hasn't answered that question. You're still at the middle of both controversies. In the Tupac case, you were at club 662. You were away from the shooting when it happened, but you took people off of Tupac. It's pretty clear. Uh, you know, you didn't, he, at, at minimum, in, in the light most favorable to Reggie Wright, I can say he certainly didn't have a clue as to what was happening within his organization at, at the night Tupac got shot. That's that's being as favorable as I can be, that he was just ignorant and just had complete lack of control of what was going on in his organization, which doesn't speak well for a security guy, obviously, or a head of a security company, you know, but especially corporate security. But then from there the slope becomes very steep very quickly into how much he did or didn't know about things. And you can't just run around saying, Don, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yet that seems to be what we get when he gets really pushed for you're in the middle of this. Take the Pucci Faust theory. He says that, uh, what's her name? Tammy Hawkins that wanted the money to allegedly pay Pucci Faust for the killing that Reggie Wright gave Tammy Hawkins, the money to pay Poochie Faust. Now, he'll tell you, well, I didn't know what it was for. It was just Suge's baby mama asking for money, and I didn't know what it was for. But when Suge's baby mama asked for money, I give it to her. That's what I do. I give it to her. Okay. So he's claiming a plausible deniability there. But you're still an accessory. You're an accessory after the fact because you provided the money for a murder. And the I didn't know defense, I think, can only go so far, even in that case, because he's saying, I didn't know. The, the Tupac killing, same thing. I didn't know. So they've tried to burn the Orlando Anderson theory. They've tried to burn a couple of other things, even the Kading thing, to try to deflect it. But until Reggie Wright really gives us a complete explanation of exactly what he was doing for Death Row Records at the time that he was involved and why his story of events and the McPherson attorneys who were death row attorneys that were running back and forth, they swore in bankruptcy court, they swore an open court uh, affidavits under penalty of perjury that Reggie Wright Jr. was the only one that they were dealing with. If you wanted to deal with Suge Knight, you had to deal with Reggie Wright Jr., which puts him squarely in the middle of all of the business dealings of death row. How are you going to pay somebody for a hit and Reggie Wright not know about it? Okay. So I, I, I just feel like there's been a lot of inadequate answers to these questions. And he's the only one that can illuminate us. If he's innocent or if he's got a problem, he's the only one that can do it. What have you heard him say or what has his answer been to a very simple question? Did he hire, have a relationship, hang out with or no? Rafael Perez, David Mack, Kevin Gaines. Uh, or Amir Muhammad. And I'll put Amir Muhammad separate. I can understand why he probably would say I didn't have a relationship with him. But what about just David Mack and Rafael Perez? What has he said about either their role at right way security or not? No, he he has completely disavowed any knowledge of any of them. Says he didn't even know who they were. Had no idea who these people were. And again, it's the I didn't know. I don't know, you know, defense. I didn't know these guys. I mean, there's a blanket of information out there that places these guys at death row activities. And I think this is where this is where it gets difficult. This is where it's, a, you know, an evidence chain kind of breaks down. We have pictures of them at death row events. We know they were there. We know that other witnesses have seen them around at death row activities. Did that mean that they were paid employees of right way security or? On the alternative, like uh, Heron or Buntree, where Death Row was paying them on the side, probably cash, they weren't 
1099 or W-2 employed like Frank Alexander was for right-way security. You know, they had these different ways of paying people, you know, for their services. And so whether or not David Mack, Rafael Perez were, I think Reggie Wright may have plausible deniability in insisting that, well, they weren't right-way employees like a Frank Alexander or Leslie Golden uh, were uh, Kenneth John, uh, John uh, Kenneth uh, um, Archer, people that worked for right way had a paycheck. They got, you know, W-2s at the end of the year, you know, regular guys working a security job. David Mack and Rafael Perez, I think, as were a lot of other law enforcement officers that were hired by death row, I don't think they were run through the right way security company. I think they were paid per diem, subcontractors paid cash, like a daily thing, you know, $400 a day to go do security for an event or whatever. I think if there's going to be any employment relationship between death row and David Mack and Rafael Perez, I think that's what you'll find. Uh, other than that, that's where the evidence chain breaks down. We know we're there. We just don't understand their role within death row. Uh, and that gives Reggie that, that lack of, I would say that, that ambiguity in the middle there. That's where Reggie times tends to live in that sea of ambiguity because only he could, if, if he, and he claims not to know anything about it. If, if he's, if he's not being truthful about that, he needs to provide at least more clarity to what their roles were. Did you see him around at least? I don't even think he's admitted to even seeing them at death row functions. You know, David Mack, from what I've heard from various law enforcement people, Rafael Perez, you know, these guys, these guys were sophisticated, renegade, rogue cops that, you know, the idea of they didn't really have a home. They, you thought they were LAPD guys, but they weren't. Kind of Roman. scenario that exists where they were around Suge, they were around Reggie, and they were the, they were the wolves. Where everyone has always thought maybe they were these pawns used by Suge or used by Reggie. Is it possible that they went to those guys and were extorting them and saying, hey, we're here. We're going to hang out. You're going to pay us. If you don't, then we'll figure out a way to fuck you. We'll figure out a way of, of how to go and put a put a put a charge on you, et cetera, et cetera. Reggie doesn't strike me as a sophisticated guy. Maybe he's playing the 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 OG shucks. Woe is me type card. Maybe that's the possibility that these guys were scared of a Mac or a Perez. You know, Suge was only as strong as the gangsters that were around him. Russ thought that Mac and Perez were kind of more or less like groupies, like super groupies. But they were of value because, hey, you got some cops that are fans. I mean, you know, what the hell? You got kind of free extra layer of bodyguarding protection there because even if they're not being paid, if they're at the death row party and something jumps off, those guys are going to cover your butt. They're going to be there for you because, you know, if somebody makes a move on Tupac, David Mack's going to jump in the middle of that. You know, clearly, like you said, kind of rogue, kind of rogue mentality there. Russ always thought that they were just kind of glorified fans. But when the opportunity came up and the conversation came up around and, and I'm sure it's something that gets talked about, you know, Tupac gets killed. Suge gets shot out. Suge wants to know who did it. They have to bake a theory that Biggie was in um, Las Vegas at the time of the shooting and that he paid Orlando Anderson and gave him the gun to go do the hit. If that's what Suge Knight believed in this game, now we're going to go make a move on Biggie. You know, we sit here in almost 2021. I've heard rumblings from Perry Sanders that they're trying to refile the civil case. I've heard rumblings, oh, the FBI might look into this case again. Knowing everything that you know, because I know where I sort of land on this, do you think that specifically first the murder of, of Biggie will ever be solved? Oh yeah, I think it's good. I think it'll be solved by who is the really is the I think the, the big question by how is it going to be solved? I think it will be solved, but by how is it going to be solved? Um, a couple of quick points, you know, um, and and Phil Carson's clearly the person that would be able to eliminate this more than I would be able to because it's actually one of the things that I really want to get better understanding from from him. Procedurally speaking, murders are generally not federal crime; it, they're state crimes. 
And so any involvement the FBI would have in an investigation of murder would be to literally investigate it and then make the referral to the state for prosecution to work with the state and law enforcement agencies and the state prosecutor's office. I think I, you may know better than I, I think there is a federal murder charge, but it's used so rarely it has to involve like multiple states, multiple jurisdictions. I have to say here. And this is me just being honest. I still feel the politics inside the city of Los Angeles are still too strong. And the alliances between the U.S. attorney, the LAPD, and the city attorney for Los Angeles too sensitive to re-examine what happened with the cover-up. With the recent unrest of 2020 and with policing inside the LAPD at one of its weakest points... The time to make this case is now. I don't think the LAPD is going to ever be an avenue that they're going to be able to get through. What you'd have to be able to do is you'd have to have a, a chief of police, the LAPD, and a, a, a an LA city attorney and arguably mayor that would have to be willing to just basically carve out half a billion dollars out of their budget for a settlement fund and say, um, okay, we're willing to look at this because, again, Rolling the dice on an investigation, if there are crooked cops involved and they were on the job or their employees of the city of Los Angeles at that time, you know, you've got from a civil point, you've got them dead to rights. Um, so I, I do think that that um, the city of Los Angeles is certainly never going to, uh, unfortunately, uh, be an avenue to go through. The FBI is going to have to manhandle this all by themselves. Um, I think they've tried to go after death row records, at least for certain predicate acts uh, already uh, with the uh, money laundering and, and uh, um, arms trafficking uh, investigations they were doing back in the day on death row. Um, it's it's whether or not there's a hook like, you, you know, we talk about you know, there's got to be a, that before you can establish the predicate act of the murder. They have to have something else to go on. And I'm no, not sure where they are with that. You know, that's obviously, that's more of a Phil question. But um, in terms of Ru what Russ always said about will the crimes ever be solved, he thinks it's going to take a deathbed confession of some sort before there's actually real movement on the case in terms of, of that. Or in the alternative, there's a couple of key players. We know who their names are. One of those players is going to roll over on the other one officially. And when they do that, it'll become basically like, uh, um, you know, Sammy the Bull. You know, uh, it'll be one of those situations where you have somebody turn state's evidence or participate or cooperate with the federal government on something against the other person to where now they have some meat to their claims. Um, so I, I'm encouraged. I do think I, I think we've already figured out. I think we've solved the case in terms of what we believe happened. I think we've got it all figured out. It's it's whether or not the FBI especially in today's day and age where they've got so many other things that they're messing around with right now, whether or not a 20-year-old cold case is top of their priority list for manpower resources. That's, I think, that's what it comes down to. Well, I will actually ask a, a, a Tupac question because I do think it kind of ties a lot of this stuff together. You did call your movie Tupac Assassination the battle for Compton. Why did why that tagline, the battle for Compton? When that started to manifest itself, when we started looking at the whole helicopter conspiracy theory and some other things there, the idea came that the Compton police and Omar Bradley, the mayor, that there was really a power struggle, and I think still is to this day to some degree, in the city of Compton for control over who really runs that city. And it became a question of, who is the there's a there's there's the official control of the city and that but who really runs the city's morale who's the ethical center of that city who who really controls it in that sense is it is it a city that's full of drugs and problems because one element wants it that way maybe the other element doesn't you talk to omar bradley you know he was supposed to be this you know, bastion of of goodwill and and stand up guy, and he was battling the Compton Police Department. They were fighting with each other constantly. So, Battle for Compton really became about death row records, Tupac. The Battle for Compton was always there. 
but that was that was the ground from which Death Row Records rose up. That was the ground from which Suge Knight came, Reggie Wright came. All these players that became Death Row Records and eventually what happened with Tupac and Biggie all came from that fruit of the poisonous tree, if you want to call it that. So the idea of Battle for Compton was more like who's who's in charge of the soul of Compton? You know, is it the mayor? Is it was the Compton Police Department? Were they really running the city of Compton? You know, uh, by force was death row running the city of Compton. You know, Battle for Compton really became about the conflict for kind of the soul of this group of people in the city. 